Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode finishes my discussion of The Buried Giant with Maureen Speller. As a reminder, last episode, we framed this discussion as involving two key relationships, the broad relationship of the Saxons and Britons, and also the relationship between Axel and Beatrice, Mm -hmm. and how that relationship is maintained, particularly because there's so much they've forgotten. Last episode, we discussed the critical reception of The Buried Giant. Just how funny people still are about genre. We covered our different approaches to world building. I find a richly detailed background can become more distracting. And we talked about collective memory and modern parallels to the collective forgetting in the novel. In the UK, we've had a, a great deal of a ceremony and ritual to sort of mark it's 100 years since the First World War. Let's be bold, yes, I find it very offensive, is the way that my government is choosing to not exactly rewrite history, but dwell upon certain things. We also closed on a bit of a cliffhanger. I know what we need to talk about, Jonah. Yes. We need to talk about the boatman. This episode, we will talk about the boatman. Also, the matter of Britain. What is more fantastical than a large green bloke turning up in the middle of your Christmas? <laughs> we will also talk about... This is sort of great tussle between the personal and the political. And then we'll talk about aging. Final chapter is devastated. Yes. That was hard. And now, the conclusion. We need to talk about the boatman. I don't know, I mean, did you think, having read John's thing, that it is actually the boatman who tells the story? I remember the opening feeling as though some kindly figure was taking my hand, sort of guiding me into the story that Ishiguro was telling me. And I have trouble reconciling that with the boatman, only because the boatman seems to have such a clear function as the one who carries away people as they're dying. And... (laughs) makes a point, as I recall, about being busy. Although clearly has plenty of time to sit around in a villa with someone and talk. So I wasn't entirely persuaded, but certainly don't have any alternatives. I wonder if you're calling him the boatman, if you actually think of him as the ferryman. A more general idea of crossing the river, you know, so this figure becomes a a kind of generic ferryman, so he could be a, a genuine ferryman. Because, of course, Mm -hmm. you would have them. And I think, actually, that's one of the things I like about it. When he first appeared as the boatman figure, I thought, oh, this is an allegory. This is clearly an allegory. The sun is dead. And then I became a little less persuaded. And then at the end, I was like, oh, yeah, we are back to the fact that obviously the sun is dead. Which actually reminds me of the other thing I wanted to raise with you. Are you familiar with Pearl, the dream poem? The reason I picked on that one is, of course, it's theoretically, the writer of Gawain and the United Gawain poet also wrote Pearl, and Pearl is primarily the story of the dream of the father who has lost his pearl, has lost his daughter, and in the dream he sees her, and so sees her arrayed in heaven. He's actually trying to work through his own grief, and so that's expressed in the dream encounter. It struck me there's a sort of sense of this whole thing uh, the whole novel is a kind of dream narrative and encounter from Beatrice and Axel mm-hmm. actually come to terms with the absence of the sun, but not in quite such a, a searing manner. It's as though they've lost their son uh, by forgetting about him, uh, rather than sort of the raw agony of knowing all the time that their, their child is dead. Um, and having sort of sought to deal with the fact of his death by trying to forget about it, they've actually sort of been forced to the fact that only way to find pieces to acknowledge it and at the end part of their own traversing the river it's also partly an acknowledgement that their son has gone and there's not actually anything they can do to bring him back by pretending he's he's just somewhere else Mm -hmm. 
And it's almost as though actually the, sort of the idea of the universal forgetting allows them to personally forget as well, or to justify that forgetting. And whereas once Quarig's gone, and the country is having to acknowledge various things, they have to acknowledge the personal loss, and in acknowledging the personal loss, they're kind of able to let go of their own lives as well. I, I think we have not particularly touched on sort of the relationship between the personal and political sides of the story, but that that I, seems like a good way to allude to the two and the ways that they connect. Yes. I, it's actually one of the interesting things is that you, it seems to me that you can't actually easily separate out the personal from the, the broader political picture. I get quite infuriated with people who say, oh, I, I'm not political. The mere act of living is political. Mm-hmm. Every single make is political. It's um, what they mean is they're not into politics. But I think it's it used to amuse me when I was younger, being at the age I am, and uh, it's sort of point where in the sort of mid seventies, you know, it looked as though the nuclear arms race would escalate quite severely. In common with a lot of kids my age, I was sort of terribly worried about the idea of a nuclear uh, disaster. And of course, you know, people are trying to deal with this in um, art and literature. Mm-hmm. And I can remember saying to my mother, you know, I was sort of really very concerned about this. In very rare times, I sort of expressed a personal concern. Uh, my mother, in all seriousness, assured me that it wouldn't bother us. And I'm thinking, we live 20 miles south of an American airbase. It's going <laughs> to nuke it. Mm-hmm. And for her, the way she dealt with this was by assuming that everything beyond our garden gate was somebody else's problem and that nothing would actually disturb us within the, the sort of the perimeter of our little world, our house, our, you know, our garden. And this was absolutely crazy, but I can actually see from her point of view, you know, for her, the only way to accommodate that was to simply not think about it at all. Mm-hmm. It was only by refusing, as she saw it, to you know, engage in, in politics uh, we would be protected, which is obviously nonsense. But I think a lot of people try to do that for whatever reason. It's just easier to, to you know, self-preservation. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I get up some days and I look at the news and I think, I just can't deal with this anymore. There's just so much of it. But, yep. <laughs> yeah, but the problem is, this is the situation you get when you try not to deal with it, is you get Axel and Beatrice's village I'm, I'm sure it's no coincidence that it is underground. It's a warren. You know, they, 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 they're hiding away. Mm-hmm. This Guru's acknowledgement that there are no simple solutions. There are no straightforward solutions. Axe and Beatrice, they are our representatives within this whole story. They're confused. They've got no idea what's going on. We don't really know what's going on a lot of the time because we're reliant on them to show us what's going on. It's a very good novel, I've read fairly recently, Emmy Iterante's um, Memory of Water. Again, what's so interesting to me about that is the fact that her characters are on the periphery. They're not at the heart of the story. They're seeing a little piece of the story. So mm-hmm. you actually argue that they're in some ways analogous to Axel and Beatrice, who are also seeing a little bit of the story. But of course the kicker here is that Axel once was the story. Right. He's kind of got thrown out of his own story. And we can only begin to imagine what Beatrice was. As John's sort of rightly fastened on that princess, we have to ask ourselves, what was Beatrice? We don't know. Mm-hmm. They run away and make an unsuitable marriage. <laughs> <laughs> They're so invested in one another. Was she really a, a daughter of Arthur? We don't know about that, that kind of thing. It's, it's fascinating. I love the fact that he never gives us those answers. We're now going to look back at the historical Britain constructed in The Buried Giant. It's almost as though 
this narrator is sort of reaching back into history and talking about the ways in which England has changed. And yet there are other odd moments. At one point in my past, I was an archaeological volunteer. I, I did tend to work on Anglo-Saxon sites while I was doing that. When they're in the Saxon village, I was very struck by the fact there's a rocking chair there. Now, rocking chairs didn't come into being until the 18th century. Huh. So I'm wondering, what, what is a rocking chair doing there? Now, it could be they've invented a rocking chair. Somebody's invented a rocking chair. Shigeru's is left there, you know, for you to wander at. But at one point when I was reading that, I thought it's almost like he's compiling an idea of a series of a historical slice of what people thought the this particular period in history would look like. And, you know, they might think there were rocking chairs there. Yeah, why not? I certainly was not at all bothered by the notion of a rocking chair. I was sort of thinking, um, you know, say um, somebody was writing a sort of mildly anachronistic secondary world fantasy. They just sort of put a rocking chair in because it's a nice cosy thing. And, and it's a signifier of cosy and comforting, you know, and a place to relax into. It only sort of struck me the second time. I thought, did the Anglo-Saxons have rocking chairs? I thought, I bet they didn't. Um, <laughs> You know, I, again, if I read this as not a absolutely historical thing, um, then it, it's, why not? Why not? When they go to the monastery, and the monastery is a hill fort with a stone tower inside it, historically that seems to me to be wrong, because the Saxons, as I understand it, didn't really use the hill forts. And I don't think they would have built stone. The Normans might have done, you know, when they put their, their castles up. At the same time, I thought, again, this is kind of compiling a a composite idea of what pre-Norman Britain might have looked like. I really like the reading of a sort of deliberately composite and deliberately anachronistic because otherwise there are inconsistencies that, that just bug me and that I just find jarring. But if instead we say, well, there's a certain amount of constructed past. You have to remember, too, the very idea of the matter of Britain. You know, sort of the idea of Arthur is a constructed thing as well. The archaeological trend to try and figure out whether Arthur was a real person, you have to bear in mind that the, the matter of Britain is a, is a gathering of stories about somebody who may or may not have existed, a whole bunch of people. Some of it is fantastical particularly stories you know, drawing on the, the Welsh traditions. And I mean, let's face it, what is more fantastical than a large green bloke turning up in the middle of your Christmas? <laughs> I think we should always take Gawain and the Green Knight as our, our model here. You know, there's a bloke turns up, who's Enker Green, has his head chopped off, tucks it under his arm and says, see you next year. See you next year. Mm -hmm. Absolutely irresistible. Uh, I mean, you know, and that's very old. And then you have that all tied in with the overlays of Gawain's chivalry, the various points in which he is uh, a good knight. Of course, I mean, actually, I think the most interesting thing about Gawain, of all of them, is that he comes back from his uh, adventures with the Green Knight, and he's greeted as a hero. Everyone is saying, oh, this is absolutely fantastic, and they will start wearing, you know, uh, green girdles as favours, as honours. But the point is that Gawain knows perfectly well that he fails. You know, he, he, he copped up. He very nearly got himself killed because he didn't hand over the girdle. So he hasn't been you know, the perfect knight, not by any means. And yet it, it's almost as though he's the knight that embodies the sort of hypocrisy that actually lies at the heart of Arthur's court. And I think what we see actually in part is a Gawain who is haunted by what's happened. And you know, he's supposed to be killing the dragon, and of course he's actually protecting the dragon because he saw what happened the first time. He doesn't want that to happen again, and yet everybody else is very acutely aware of what they've lost personally as well. There's this sort of great tussle between the personal and the political. Mm -hmm. He's sitting back and saying, no, we, we, we need to carry on forgetting. And everybody else is saying, no, no, we need to remember. Mm -hmm. 
he knows, I think, all, all the way through that he's going to have to accept that, but he's going to do his best to sort of divert them. And he never really comes out and says it until right at the very end. And it's, it's so he's tried to sort of very politely divert everybody. I think it's significant too, actually, that we've got Axel and Beatrice as two very old people who are quite clearly dying. So, you know, they, they also represent that, whereas Whiston and Edwin, members of younger generations, two younger generations, because they don't know or they haven't experienced that. The yeah. only way they can understand is by experiencing it all over again. And this leads us to the older and younger Saxon and the older Saxon telling the younger one, promise me that you will hold hatred for Britain in your heart, all of them, no matter what, and remember all of the terrible things that they have done to you. So we've adjudicated every man, woman, and child of their blood, so promise me this. Should I trust you my skills, promise me you'll tend well this hatred in your heart, and should it ever flicker or thread, I shield it with care. Yes. What jumped out to me was a passage from Beowulf, after Beowulf returns, and he has this aside, and I can't even entirely remember the context of the aside, but he's talking about Hrothgar's daughter and how she had brought peace between two kings, and he says, but think how the Hathobards will be bound to feel their lord Ingeld and his loyal thanes when he walks in with that woman to the feast, stains at the table. Then an old spearman will speak while they are drinking, having glimpsed some heirloom that brings alive memories of the massacre. His mood will darken, and heart-stricken in the strength of his emotion, he'll begin to test a young man's temper. And basically, Beowulf foretells that this, this wedding that is designed to sort of paper over older family feuds is not going to succeed in that. And we see in the buried giant passing on the feud from one generation to the next, which is, again, a way of constructing history and myth and what came before. And the book, I think, is fairly pessimistic that now that the dragon's breath is gone, the Saxons intend to rise up and continue the wars that had been before. I hadn't actually had forgotten about that passage in Beowulf until you mentioned it. <laughs> It's that never forgive, never forget, isn't it? We have a duty to hate every man who can with their blood. And no, it's terribly wrong. And then I'm thinking, I am sitting here as a person who's living in a country that hasn't been properly invaded for <laughs> <laughs> an awfully long time. And I am not in any kind of position to imagine what it's like to be in a situation where my country has been overrun and I have managed to sort of carve out the kind of existence within that and what my expectations might be. I'm quite fascinated by the way in which people who live in a very settled community can often seem to find it very difficult to empathise. I notice, again, my government... Well, I say my government, I did not vote them in... Um, <laughs> nominally in charge of this country. So it's like, oh, well, we'll only have these refugees because they're nice, well-behaved refugees and they've been sitting still over there for quite a long time. Look at what these people are doing. And they say, have you absolutely no idea what it would be like to be in a position where you have been driven out of your country by you know, famine, war, and trying to find a place that to you seems safe? And, you, and clearly they don't. And... I'm trying to imagine them, A, doing that, and then having found themselves in a place where they're, say, you know, possibly being given um, a sort of 
quasi-sanctuary by people who were trying to, you know, sort of overrun their country. How would they feel? It seems to me that Wiston's response is an entirely reasonable response. And I think that actually having presented him as a sympathetic character, you know, a fairly sympathetic character throughout, mm-hmm. Ishiguru is then challenging us. As you've been talking about stasis and the way that the dragon's breath maintains the stasis, I'm thinking of the return of the king and getting back to a static golden age and that there seems to be more and more interest in critiquing that and seeing progress rather than a reversion to stasis. Yes, of course, I mean, we have Arthur, the once and future king, so much predicated on the idea that Arthur will return to us. You think how many times that comes up actually in, in fantasy stories? I mean, something like Alan Garner's The Weird Stone of Brisingerman, who sleepers under the hill. It's, it's Arthur and his knights still waiting. There's so many places around the uh, UK where Arthur and his knights sleep under the ground. You know, they're, they're waiting for the moment when they're going to uh, be called back. Even now, that's, that's still an idea that resonates a great deal with certain groups of people. Mm-hmm. If only we had X back in charge of whatever. Uh, it, it comes down to actually some, you know, very micro levels, so that I do the return of the king. I know Mieville has been quite sort of critical of fantasies like Lord of the Rings, the sort of the idea of it's all about restoration and consolation rather than a, a moving forward. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm quite engaged with that idea of, um, you know, something like the buried giant. I mean, of course, actually, again, burial. So you've got in this in this instance that the, the giant is being exhumed. The giant has, you know, is as Querig, but also as the concept, the thing we must forget about. I wonder if that ties in with ideas that, like in South Africa, you know, the sort of the um, process of truth and reconciliation, mm-hmm. which is theoretically achieved by an airing, you know, discussion. The recitation of the events that have happened and actually bringing them into the open rather than by trying to ignore them. I wouldn't say I've actually sort of got frustrated with the idea of the sort of the, the arc of story in which uh, I guess Lord of the Rings is the template for that. I actually think that Lord of the Rings is a very satisfying example of it because you're left at the end there's always those although they come back to the shire i mean all right yes saruman's got to the shire first and sort of you know messed around with it a bit but there's this kind of balance between the fact that sam will become the settled patriarch and will you know record the history of the shire and will remember everything whereas frodo is the kind of Fisher King type character, and he's the damaged one. He can't enjoy what he has helped to bring about, and so he must go to the Grey Havens. So there's always that sense, I think, in Tolkien that there are consequences. But what I think in some of the, the Tolkien clones that came after is that they didn't actually recognize the consequences. Right. You have something. You can go back. You can only ever go forward, and to go forward is to go forward with something that's different. It might look the same, but it is different in that it is, you know, it's, it's now built on a different foundation. There's that fracture, you know, like the trees have been cut down. There are more trees in the Shire, yes, because Sam's gone round and planted them all, but they're different trees. They're not the same trees. Uh, and there's a temptation to look and say, oh, you know, the Shire's just the way it's always been, and yet you know it isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, same way that I think. Shiguru is hinting, you know, when he talks about the landscape, you know, you, you think it's always like this, and it wasn't always like this, but this is your perception of England, what it's like. You know, I, sort of, I think back to my childhood before we had Dutch Elm disease in uh, England, and that changed 
the landscape radically. And yet, for a lot of people, this will be how England has always looked. Uh, in the same way that the farmers grubbed up a lot of the hedges because they wanted bigger fields because it was easier for their tractors. Yet, you know, generations of people now who don't know that fields were once a lot smaller. So this is the sort of the green and pleasant land they've, they've always been familiar with. Whereas mm-hmm. I, what I'm looking for, and I think the Ishiguru is heading towards with uh, the buried giant, is um, a recognition that even if you restore, it's not the same, but that actually in itself restoration is, is a very problematic thing because you're trying again to pretend that something's not happened. It's, it's like that bridge that was destroyed in was it Pristina, the, the very important, iconic historical bridge um, that was um, blown up, and it's been restored. And, you know, it's represented as a symbol of the fact that they're moving on, but it's exactly the same as it was. So there's obviously this desire to retain and pretend that things have you know, stayed the same. But you know, you know they're not. And I think that, yes, the Ishiguru is actually trying without necessarily directing, directly critiquing you know, some of the fantastical art. But he is saying that the only constant is change, and to try and stop change... I mean, there are ways of dealing with change, and one might expect somebody like Axel, who was obviously a negotiator. Mm-hmm. You know, where is the Axel for this period, this new, this new time? You know, the Axel who will attempt to talk to everybody. My big interest in the novel was the boatman, you know, because it was so obvious what the river was and the island was, and we were talking about the closeness of death and the way that death was constantly intruding, which is one of the reasons, actually, at one point, I did wonder whether this was actually a kind of deathbed reverie from one of the characters as well. Um, I'm not as persuaded of that as I was, but I'm interested in the idea of the boatman is constantly present, you know, sort of the psychopomp is sort of saying, it's coming, you know, it's here. Um, and, of course, they're trying to deny that as well. I mean, this is where we get to the person, isn't it? You know, this very, very affecting love story with two old people who love one another and probably aren't really terribly sure why they love one another, but they do love one another and they still love one another and they want to be together because that is what makes sense to them. And I think, actually, that's what helps them, as long as there are the two of them, they can construct a story of their lives together. You know, they can tell mm-hmm. each other about their lives and help each other remember. And, of course, the moment that one of them dies, that process of remembering is going to be lost because there won't be anybody else for the surviving person to tell their story to or, you know, to hear their story. And it's oddly, it's kind of scary. I mean, you know, speaking of... <laughs> <laughs> Getting closer to 60 than she ever thought she was going to. Um, and being in a relationship for a very long time. And so it comes a point where you suddenly realise that you are no longer young, that you aren't going to live forever, no matter what you tell everybody, and that your body is in very small and subtle ways beginning to let you down, and that this relationship you have with this person is not going to last forever. And there's a sort of level on which every day you get up and look at one another and you think, I wonder which one of us is going to die first, and how does the other is the other going to cope? And you push this back from your mind as much as you possibly can because, you know, obviously you've got stuff to go on with and you, know, you need to earn money. So, you know, and if you stop to worry about that all the time, you would just be in a constant state of panic. So that's another form of forgetting. But I see in my parents, my father is in his early 80s and my mother is in her late 70s and they're not even the people they were five or six years ago because, you know, they're both slowing down and they seem to be very sort of peaceful about the fact, but you sort of suddenly realise there's this long, long relationship 
you know, they met when my mother was, I think, 19. You know, so they, they, they've been together for a very long time. This, this relationship is also winding down. And being the kind of family we are, we don't talk about these things. So I've no idea what they think. But yeah, I'm sort of very conscious of the fact that I wonder if they are aware that death is coming closer. You know, it sort of presses up. And it seems to me that Ishiguru is actually articulating this. I'm very persuaded by John's notion that the, the boatman is the narrator, sometimes at a distance and sometimes very present at the moments when he sort of, you know, death pushes up against Beatrice and Axis. So he's there to be there to be a part of the process. And particularly at the end, I, th- I think the final chapter is devastated. Yes. I don't speak lightly because I don't get very emotionally engaged with books most of the time, but that was, that was hard. That was very hard. I felt myself kind of skimming and pushing away from really engaging with that final chapter. Yes. I reread it just before the discussion, and again, I didn't I didn't want to fully grapple with it, partly because, as I remember it, John was fairly optimistic about Axel also crossing over. Yes, he was. And I was not nearly as optimistic when I read that final chapter. Yes, I haver on this one. I'm not really sure, um, and I'm a great fan of ambiguous endings. <laughs> moment to be left to wonder. And yet I have to say, in this case, I would love to know, I really want to believe that he comes back for Axel. my heart of hearts, I have this fear because modern novels being what they are, he doesn't. But because it's Ishiguru pushing up these ideas, I wonder actually if I'm sort of kind of second-guessing myself and he does. Of course, I think the point is I'm to be left in the torment of not knowing because mm-hmm. we never do know. And it's the thing. This is point. This is one point in our lives that we cannot account for in any way. And people can write about it, they can imagine it, but at the end, the only people who are ever going to know precisely what it's going to be like are the two people engaged in that moment. And it's going to be, again, different for everyone. Mm-hmm. I think actually one of the things Ishiguru is doing is kind of, he's offering you as the reader the option of tying the story up tidily or letting it sort of drift away in that unknowingness again because he can't do that for us. He could tell us what he thinks, but each of us who reaches that point, we can only ever know when we get there. And in a way, it's a thing that we want to avoid addressing. You know, I could be very big and brave about it because I reckon I'm good for another 30 years, but you know, it's, 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 it's coming closer. Uh, I have to say, I, I was actually quite surprised um, that the, the last two or three years I find myself thinking not morbidly, but being acutely aware of the fact that I am not, you know, I've got less life left now than I had, whereas when I was 20, it seems to sort of stretch out forever. But now I'm 56, I can't even remember. Um, you know, I'm so conscious that I don't have all the time in the world. And I found that there actually comes a point where you begin to get past that because fretting about growing old all the time is actually amazingly tedious. You know, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. And you have to make your peace with that and go on and enjoy the rest of what's left to you. And it's that process of making the piece that is kind of interesting and intriguing and slightly alarming, but I, I think I'm nearly at the, the, the point of making peace with it, so that's okay. But we're looking at people here who are so incredibly old, and his, his descriptions of them as, yeah, their frailty, that last bit where 
Axel's struggling to lift Beatrice off the horse. Yes. He does, and the boatman comes to help, and Axel has to let the boatman help because he can't do that himself anymore. And there's, and there's a kind of defeat in it, but at the same time, there's also an acknowledgement, and it's a very hard acknowledgement, that these are the things you can no longer do for your partner, that you need to have other people help you, which um, I find, I don't know, I really find it very, I want to stand back from it because, you know, that I'm British, we do these things. But at the same time, it's, it is a very deeply emotional moment. You sort of find yourself, you know, putting yourself into that scenario and wondering what it's going to be like. But at the same time, I think the way he presents the boatman, it's actually presented as a very gentle process if you think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very nice, you're going to sail away. And, you know, the, the, the boatman's sort of emphasis on the tenderness with which he, he deals with Beatrice and, Every time you ever see the boatman, it's it's very interesting about sort of how quiet he is and how still he is, and mm-hmm. his work is quite sort of repetitious. Sort of meant to, he says the same things over and over, and he just wants to be peaceful. I was kind of intrigued by him as a figure actually, because I thought, you know, are we talking about the boatman Chow and on? But yet there's that moment when they first see the boatman in the green villa, the uh, the other old woman. Mm-hmm. The way he's described as a shepherd, like a shepherd, but you know, he's, he's he's obviously not a shepherd. A kind of more um, Christian emphasis to that, and I, I found myself, you know, the idea of Jesus uh, or, or or Saint Christopher. So he's, he's a kind of a very ambiguous figure. It's almost as though he can change to suit your beliefs. Mm-hmm. Quite intriguing. Quite intriguing. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at jsuttonmorse. The show is on Twitter at kingcabbagecast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.